Welcome, everyone. My name is Justin Logan. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. And it's my pleasure to welcome everybody to our book forum event today, online, unfortunately, uh, for Spencer Ackerman's book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Um, and I think we were remarking before the uh, 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 video went live how uh, perhaps auspicious for book sales it may be the timing of this book uh, and this event, but how auspicious for other considerations uh, the current uh, moment is. Uh, we have, of course, the advent of the anniversary of 9-11 terrorist attacks, uh, what appears to be a recipient meltdown in Afghanistan. Uh, it's Friday the 13th, and apparently I'm told President Donald Trump is going to be reinstated today. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on out there. Um, but this book is a really biting and important um, criticism of America's war on terrorism. Um, and I think we're going to hear a lot of discussion about um, what's going wrong and how and whether it can be fixed. So with that, I want to introduce Spencer Ackerman. He'll give a brief synopsis of the argument book, and then we'll go to the, I'll introduce the discussants, and they'll offer criticisms and comments, and then we'll have, as best as Zoom will allow, uh, a sort of rollicking discussion of the themes in the book. So Spencer Ackerman has been reporting on the war on terror since 2002 for outlets such as the New Republic, Talking Points Memo, the now defunct Washington Independent, Wired, The Guardian, and The Daily Beast, where he remains a contributing editor. He is also, like everyone except for me, apparently, a new substacker uh, with the Forever Wars substack to which everyone should subscribe. Uh, he's reported from both Iraq and Afghanistan, from Guantanamo Bay, and from ship submarines and military installations on multiple continents. Uh, a very short roster of the awards and praise that Spencer has won. Uh, at the New Republic, he co-authored an article that led to the Valerie Plame affair. In 2014, he shared in the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service Journalism for the Edward Snowden revelations uh, at The Guardian. And among other awards, he won a National Magazine Award for exposing anti-Islam counterterrorism training at the FBI. So Spencer, for better and for worse, I think you'll hear, has covered uh, the global war on terrorism uh, since almost its inception and in some gory detail. So with that, I think I'd like to turn things over to Spencer for a really truncated, unfortunately, synopsis of the book. So please, Spencer, thanks for being here and take it away. Justin, thank you so much. And thank you to Cato for hosting this event. Um, it would you know, hardly be more appropriate given the yeoman work that you and that Cato's Foreign Policy Studies Department uh, has done providing a critique of the war on terror and a variety of of its operations since inception. So my book is called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. And what I mean by that is that the forces that the United States unleashes after 9-11 and its response for the attack essentially represent a door to the most uh, violent, uh, the most unjust, uh, and the most nativist currents in American history. And it did so under the sort of patriotic veil of righteous vengeance. Um, this reflected uh, an important strain throughout American history that you know, we shorthand as American exceptionalism. 
the idea that America acts and America is not acted upon, that the institutions that America builds, ultimately it builds uh, for its benefit as much as it you know, proclaims it is also um, in the interest of the, the rest of the world. And after 9-11, the forces uh, that come to dominate American politics and American culture um, understand what had happened on 9-11 as something akin to a civilizational assault. Um, there are more and less respectable versions of this, but uh, a deliberate imprecision from the start of the war on terror that you know, even think about what we are calling it, the war on terror, uh, a very question begging name that functioned as kind of a social compromise between saying that it was a war on Islam or a war against a specific target, a specific enemy, something that could be vanquished, something that it could be defeat that could be defeated, and quite possibly something that did not require the construction of a global apparatus unconstrained by time or space, and as we would soon learn, by budget. Ultimately, the way this comes to be understood throughout 20 years of this going in particular disastrously not just in Iraq, not just in Afghanistan, but far more broadly with the rise of second generation enemies uh, like the so-called Islamic State, is that ultimately this represents, particularly to this nativist current that is unleashed after 9-11, uh, to look like an assault by something that's perhaps not all of Islam, but always Islamic, something that exists not only overseas, but inside America's borders already, something that is determined to change the United States in unacceptable ways. And this manifests itself in uh, the meme known as birtherism, the lie that Barack Obama uh, was not just not an American citizen, but, and this is an important um, thing to note, a Kenyan Muslim. Uh, at a time in which a national emergency existed that functionally hailed uh, the, of the presidency, uh, the rise of President Obama, as something akin to an internal enemy or allied with America's internal enemies. This is how a community center uh, in lower Manhattan becomes uh, transmogrified into the Ground Zero Mosque, a symbol of triumph, it was said by people like Pamela Geller, um, in, uh, of Islam over the, uh, the World Trade Center, how state legislatures around the country uh, try to ban so-called Sharia law um, really is an attempt to constrain the civic space uh, to be a Muslim. And then from a kind of institutional level, what the works of the war on terrorism are, aren't simply open-ended and futile wars in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's also the construction of a bulk surveillance regime that renders uh, the common sense understanding of the Fourth Amendment functionally quaint. Uh, the construction of an indefinite detention regime, but only for some people. The construction of an enormous network of uh, FBI uh, infiltration of entire religious communities to include sacred spaces of worship, but never against people who aren't Muslim. Uh, does it do that um, to um, entrapment plot and the full use 
of uh, the machinery of prosecution uh, for something called material support for terrorism, which is what most people convicted in this country of terrorism-related offenses have done. They've funded something. They haven't blown something up. Um, and so on and so forth, torture in particular, uh, the creation of a context for immigration, not as a mechanism to make more Americans, but as a mechanism to threaten those Americans that are already here. And as this goes on and on and on, and as the leaders of the security apparatus prove themselves again and again, unwilling or unable to either deliver peace or victory, the American exceptionalism on uh, the nativist right becomes you know, locked in a kind of cognitive dissonance that it can't understand how such a you know, all but subhuman enemy as it has been described uh, is possibly able to frustrate the most powerful country on the earth. And they turn towards explanations that have much more to do with internal subversion um, and internal betrayal of what America is supposed to be, not just supposed to do, but supposed to be. And this is how you get someone like Donald Trump coming down the gilded escalator at Trump Tower saying that all of the elites that you have trusted this long that have told you not to act as nativists, not to say that we are at a war against radical Islam, not to say that immigration is threatening America. Um, these forces together, uh, the ones that have stopped America from being great, are the same ones that have delivered us an awful and unwinnable war. And in the right-wing variant of um, opposition to both American exceptionalism, uh, sorry, the right-wing opposition um, to uh, the war on terror, this becomes not a way to unravel the war on terror. This becomes a way to use the war on terror against uh, foes inside the United States against whom a real reckoning needs to happen. It simultaneously overseas uh, takes us into the era of, as Donald Trump said, bombing the shit out of them. Trump increases the drone strikes. Trump increases casualties in Afghanistan uh, by one study found 330% civilian casualty increases. Why at the time posturing as an opponent of the war on terror? He's not an opponent of the war on terror. He is in important ways the lagging indicator of the war on terror. And he gets to simultaneously find that those who constructed the war on terror come to oppose him and come not to see their role in the dialectic of creating Trump. And that's him with an opportunity to discredit them by nation with this. He gets critical validators from uh, across the war on terror. Michael Flynn, someone who uh, can reasonably said fought the war on terror as personally as anyone has during its darkest hours. What does Flynn come away with the war on terror thinking? He comes away thinking that it is a war on Islam and that the uh, obnoxious people who are not willing to let the United States employ civilizational violence are the same people who fire him. And that is how we ultimately get to grieved and unhinged narrative that someone who is the intelligence chief of the Joint Special Operations Command and ran an entire intelligence agency is somehow an enemy of the deep state. And we found on uh, the streets of cities like Portland, um, of New York, of Washington and elsewhere, the ways and the ease with which a hollowed out 
and brittle America, weakened after 20 years of institutional, not just transformations, but assaults on the institutions that are supposed to safeguard liberty, are instead repurposed, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, the Department of Homeland Security, into an apparatus of domestic repression uh, that, as Trump and his Attorney General Bill Barr say, uh, need to be used to target uh, anti-fascists and Black Lives Matter protesters and treated as terrorists. Now, Trump doesn't ultimately get his way. Uh, he faces a lot of institutional roadblocks to this. Um, the clashes between them are uh, the story of the land of my book. But I will suggest to you here, uh, before I turn over and hear the critiques of my esteemed co-panelists, that as long as the war on terror continues to exist, and don't for a moment think that uh, a withdrawal from Afghanistan represents an end to the war on terror, um, I'm happy to talk about later what I mean uh, by abolition of the war on terror. But as long as the war on terror continues to exist, uh, repurposed for uh, whatever purpose as suits uh, foreign policy and national security elites, then the next Trump, you know, quite possibly will succeed and will have all of the mechanisms available, uh, mechanisms of institutional repression at hand uh, for a final victory. And I think it is not inevitable and it is not uh, doomed to succeed. But I think looking at the last 20 years um, in the fullness of what it was without euphemism and without sentiment shows really what a glide path the war on terror is to uh, a hollowing out and um, endangering of American democracy. Thank you so much, Spencer. And I, in, in the opening seconds of this thing, screwed up as moderator already because I was supposed to let everyone know that they're uh, encouraged to submit comments or questions uh, via Facebook, Twitter, the webpage, and YouTube, or using the hashtag CatoFP. So please let me uh, uh, amend that, that uh, dilemma. And we're gonna have two rounds of, of criticisms and discussions um, from scholars and scholar practitioners uh, that, that have looked at this uh, uh, phenomenon of the American global war on terrorism. So I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. They'll speak in turn, and then we'll go uh, to your questions. So Abigail Hall Blanco is Associate Professor in Economics at Bellarmine University in Louisville, Kentucky. She's the co-author of two books directly relevant to our purposes today. The first of which is Tyranny Comes Home, The Domestic Fate of U.S. Militarism. And more recently, I think just out, Abby, correct me if I'm wrong, Manufacturing Militarism, Government Propaganda in the War on Terror, both of which are published by Stanford University Press. She's an affiliated scholar with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, research fellow at the Independent Institute. She holds a BA in economics from uh, Bellarmine University and a master and PhD in economics from George Mason. Aaron Simpson was the co-host of Bombshell, a boozy national security podcast from War on the Rocks, which I think is the best kind of podcast. Um, she has held a range of positions in the national security ecosystem, uh, including five more than five years at Keras Associates, uh, which was a sort of experimental startup that uh, was sold. It leveraged uh, social and data science. 
And she was the CEO of that organization, which was uh, successfully sold, which is the thing to do when you start an organization. Um, she previously served as the strategic advisor to ISAF's counterinsurgency advisory and assistance team, which we will probably talk about at some point in the discussion where she regularly advised military commanders throughout Afghanistan. And before deploying, she, was, she served as assistant professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Marine Command and Staff College at Quantico, Virginia. So with that, I think we'll turn things over first to Abby. When she finishes, Erin uh, will discuss, and then we'll go into the discussion. So please, Abby, go ahead and take it away. Sure. So I um, want to first thank Spencer for taking the time to, to write this. I think it's a really important work, and you're telling a very um, important story. Uh, as someone who has studied these topics extensively from the overall war on terror to torture and surveillance and police militarization and so on, um, I found that I was still learning a lot from, from reading this book. It does a really nice job of taking an infinitely complex topic because any one of those things that I just mentioned is an entire discussion in and unto itself. But this book does a really nice job of taking this infinitely complex topic and condensing it down to something cohesive and making, I think, really um, pointed criticisms of the war on terror. Um, one of the other things that I really appreciated about it was not only this really judicious decision about what to include and what maybe to, to exclude, but the fact that it was decidedly uh, hard on everybody, regardless of their political affiliation. And oftentimes when researching and reading these particular, or reading on these particular types of discussions, you find that they are decidedly partisan. Um, everybody winded up in the stocks here, nobody was left unscathed, and I really appreciated that um, from a perspective of objectivity. In Coming away from the book and reflecting upon it, there are four main themes that I really latched onto and then a few different areas that I would be curious to discuss in more detail as they relate to expansion. Um, the first, which is one that Spencer already mentioned, um, is that the war on terror is not partisan. It is a tool of both the right and the left and has been used extensively by both parties for their own purposes. Um, we can drill down more deeply into thinking more specifically, and the book does a nice job of this, of how different administrations and different individuals have used the tools of the war on terror. So we think about George Bush and torture, you think about Obama and uh, drone campaigns, and then you think about, of course, Trump, and then now what I'm one of the things I'm curious to talk about is how we might anticipate that the Biden administration is going to utilize and co-opt these tools for, uh, for its own purposes. Importantly here is recognizing that everyone is complicit in these policies, that there's no real true rejection of the war on terror from the perspective of the political elite. Any deviations are really differences in degree, but not necessarily differences of kind. Now, the second big takeaway that um, I want to point out, or the thing that I really locked onto, was this book does, without um, necessarily using this explicit language, highlights the unintended cost and consequences of the war on terror in a domestic sense. So oftentimes when people are discussing things like U.S. foreign policy, 
there's this real tendency to attempt to divorce the domestic and the foreign arenas and saying domestic policies, what's occurring overseas, or sorry, foreign policies, what's occurring overseas, domestic policies, what occurs here, and these two things don't intersect with each other. But what this book does is that it points out that these foreign policy decisions or things that appear to have an external focus can and do have a very real internal consequence. Um, it was on page 16 of the, the preface that says, the war on terror has led to the erosion of legal, political, cultural, and economic armor protecting American democracy. So the war on terror effectively has provided an avenue where it's just a repeated assault after assault after assault for now at this point, um, 20 years. And so I do have questions related to things like institutional robustness. So it appears obvious at this point that our institutions or these constraints that have been placed have bent. Have they broken in some places? And if so, can these be mended back together? If it's really just bent, can, can we bend them back into shape? Um, I think there are a few different areas here for expansion. So there's discussions about policing and police militarization. Um, police have said that's, again, a large topic unto itself. But it's not just police who've militarized. So we look at things like along the US border, you look at disaster relief, you look at a variety of other institutions as well, and we can look in, in those arenas and also see, see these types of dynamics at play. Related to that, within this book, we see kinds of the same patterns repeated over and over and over again. Um, the same tools come out. Again, who is wielding the tool might be different and the goal that they're trying to achieve may look different, but the same, the same tools get, get used. It appears that there's this kind of recipe that's been developed from the start of the war on terror. Um, and the way that I conceptualize that, both from my own work, but then also from, from reading this and thinking about it, is that there appears to be kind of this three-step process. So the first step in that process is to create fear. There's someone, there's some group that is trying to get you, that is trying to take over your way of life and so on. And so then government becomes the solution to that particular threat. The second piece of that is to appeal to some deeply seated ideological idea, patriotism being the one that immediately pops up and, and comes to mind. Uh, and then the third is to eliminate any kind of nuance whatsoever. So to create these very distinctive in-groups and out-groups, there is no room for dissension. Uh, and this is true both on the right uh, and also on the left. The example that I um, was particularly just blown away by, which was mentioned already, was this quote-unquote ground zero mosque, which I think is a particularly salient example of this dynamic. But there are certainly uh, other things as well. He mentions un unpatriotic conservatives, and then also too, uh, individuals who, after their country is invaded, do uh, the United States just this, uh, you know, they're so rude and impolite by rejecting the liberation that has been forced upon them at gunpoint, and, and how, dare the, how dare they do that. Um, I'm also reminded of a few other examples throughout the War on Terror. Uh, Paul McCartney, a British citizen who performs at halftime in uh, the Super Bowl right after 9-11, uh, gets asked point blank by a reporter, like, 
well, you're really happy to be here, aren't you? And like the the underlying subtext there is that if you don't support U.S. foreign policy, like I don't know what would have happened to him, but it, it was a very uncomfortable question. Or I can also distinctly remember from personal experience looking around and seeing lots of signs and bumper stickers of people who were very much on the left saying things like support the troops but end the war which seemed remarkably incongruous at the time and i still don't know that i completely completely understand it um and then lastly um i'll just finish up with i also found it particularly interesting that this work is bookended with discuss with discussions of, of white terrorism so he starts off by talking about uh, Timothy McVeigh and his treatment versus the treatment of uh, individuals in the war on terror, particularly um, foreign individuals who practice Islam, um, and then bring that forward to, to the present day. So particularly thinking about the 1-6 riots and now um, the what I'm anticipating is the likelihood of these tools of foreign intervention now being turned back inward for, uh, for those purposes of combating, quote unquote, far-right extremism. And so I'd be curious to know more about that. I think there are a few potential areas for expansion. Again, recognizing that uh, one book cannot be all things for, for all people. Um, I really think that one of the things that I, I would like to see in addition to this book is more of a, a political economy analysis. So the thing that this book does and points out really well is that the players on the right and the players on the left are intimately involved within this game. So that's to suggest it's not the players who are involved that are the problem. It is the game that they are playing. So to that end, what are the dynamics that are pushing individuals into this game and making them behave or incentivizing them to behave the way that they do? And then is there a potential way to change those dynamics that people are operating under such that we, we get a different outcome? Related to that, is there another way that we can potentially stem the tide or these trends that have been now ingrained for the past two decades? Um, is there some sort of uh, onus on the citizenry to push back against these types of dynamics? And if so, um, what exactly does, does that look like? Um, with respect to the discussions of, of white terrorism, I think that's really interesting in, in a couple of different ways. Um, first, I would argue that the war on terror has also sown the seeds of that in, in a couple of different ways, in addition to what's mentioned. Um, I think an important discussion about uh, deployments and military recruitment standards and how that has played into uh, the rise of far-right extremists, particularly military-affiliated far-right extremists, is an important discussion. Um, but I, I also, again, am interested in this idea of do we think that this is going to be the next big thing that's going to, again, bring out these tools that, that have been developed? And then the last piece, and this is something that is mentioned uh, in the book, comes up again, I think toward the very end that I'm, I'm desperate to, to try to understand, is why it is that the, the left does not really seem to get it in terms of how it is that they were integral in producing a political figure like Donald Trump. 
because it still seems like that there is really a, a great lack of understanding that that was um, that that is not something that they they are immune from. And I'll I'll stop there. But thank you. Abby, thanks so much. So Aaron, we'll go ahead and hand things directly over to you. All right. Well, I, I think Spencer would say it was liberals, not the left, but I'll let him make that point when, when we get back to him at, at, at the end. Um, Spencer, this is such a treat. And Justin, thank you. To, thanks to you and, and to Cato as well. Um, the war on terror is something that Spencer and I have been arguing about for, would you believe it, 15 years, um, which is not as long as the war on terror, but a very long time to be arguing about a handful of the same sorts of things. Um, I think Spencer, we, we first met with a summer that I spent in uh, Washington DC in 2005. Um, I was actually working at the RAND Corporation that summer, uh, one of a series of national security posts as we've sort of gone over. Um, and I was marking a dissertation on counterinsurgency campaigns. And in fact, my dissertation was on the role of intelligence in counterinsurgency campaigns. So uh, in a somewhat similar way to Spencer, you know, my career is born of the war on terror. Um, trying to understand it, trying to make it better, question mark. Uh, and so Spencer gives me a lot to reflect on, um, you know, as well, much as the sort of current ongoings in Afghanistan do and a number of other things, but there is a lot to chew on here. Um, and I think my first sort of question, you know, for you, Spencer, or sort of observation is, there are so many stories in this book. Um, and so I was trying to think about, you know, the, the full expanse of you know, what we're trying to, to, to tell here in a kind of single volume history of, of 20 years in the United States. But we have sort of the rise of the post-9-11 you know, post bureaucracies, that's DHS and the, the um, Director of National Intelligence. We have the growth of the NSA in particular, but also the broader, as you know, it's sort of surveillance state uh, and bulk collection along with the drone campaigns. Um, we have, as Abby mentioned, um, the, the, the campaigns of torture and indefinite detention, uh, which I think are often overlooked and sort of glossed over in the DOD tellings of this, the war on terror. Um, we then, of course, do have the ground wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to leave unmentioned a number of other particular areas of operation. Um, and then we get into kind of the, the meat of, of things, which is the, the reverberation back into American society all of which is then kind of grounded in this broader story of American imperialism and shades of, a, of an intellectual history of liberal hawks and neoconservatives, right? And I think at different times, I mean, certainly in different conversations we've had, parts of different parts of that animate you more than others, right? So there's, um, you know, coming coming of age really in an era of, of liberal hawkishness that really pervaded certainly the, the many of the formal parts of the Democratic Party in the early 2000s. Um, coming out of you know 1999 and uh, Kosovo and the Balkans, you talk a bit about that. But there's there's really these these two um, sides of a very similar coin, right? That sort of generate the consensus around um, the, the early years of the war on terror. And I think that there's that's a whole book in and of itself. And I don't think that that's fully been explored here. Uh, but it remains, you know, this sort of crux of how do all of these folks. Um, come to play uh, the early war on terror, both in terms of the surveillance pieces, but also the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, there is a piece, you know, in talking about the war in Iraq that I think 
is a maybe it's because it's been explored you know sufficiently elsewhere but those early decisions to to go to iraq are also a weird internal or domestic coalition of the willing um, not just between democrats and republicans but even within the the bush administration itself rumsfeld cheney and paul wolfowitz all have kind of distinct reasons for wanting to pursue the invasion um, none of which are particularly related to the war on terror per se, right? That which is to understand it as some sort of war against Al Qaeda or maybe Osama bin Laden. Um, but that's its own, you know, piece of this puzzle. How do we create conditions in such a short amount of time that that conflict gets put on the table in such a well? Obviously, we have to invade Iraq, sort of way. I mean, you can see even so early on the way that the the um, narrative and political risk calculations shift. Um, to to the point where that becomes not quite inevitable, but it felt pretty inevitable in terms of the way that we'd always describe it as that march to war. Um, not a lot of deliberation, not a lot of opposition. Thinking a little bit more, I don't know, analytically, um, as I'm sort of reading your piece and, you know, perhaps as being trained as a political scientist and trying to really, you know, delve into some of the specific organizational dynamics here. I think one of the pieces that the book is most um, um, dogged in pursuing is this idea of the creation of a security state. Uh, and you've written about this in the Substack uh, pieces as, as well. And I think it is at one level, one of the most clear legacies of the war on terror, right? Especially with regard to probably NSA and bulk collection, um, but the emergence of the of, quote, a security state. But the more I think about it, the more I wonder, is it monolithic? Is there really one? Is there a security state? Or are there in fact, you know, multiple competing bureaucracies within a broader security apparatus um, that in fact do have their own agendas, their own uh, political pro proclivities, um, but also their own almost foreign policy preferences that they want to see enacted. And I think, you know, certainly the tensions between CIA and DOD are pretty well documented, you know, elsewhere. Um, rivalries within even the intelligence community are, are relatively well known. And so just wanting to push, you know, you a bit, um, it's even highlighted within the book places where aspects of what I would have thought would be the security state are pushing back against the White House because um, either the White House isn't doing the thing they want done or isn't doing the thing they want in the same way. And there is this back and forth there. I am also reflect, you know, when we sort of think about the Trump years, um, you know, the pieces that get people like Jim Mattis to resign um, are withdraw from Syria, right? It's not any of the other excesses or abuses um, it's, you know, a specific piece of, of the, you know, second or third phase of, of the war on terror. How do we understand that in terms of the security state? Um, is that, you know, just the very much proving your point? Is it the exception that proves the rule? Or is there a more sort of complicated set of dynamics underneath there that, that we should unpack? Um, and then lastly, uh, you know, I think, well, actually, I should say before I get to lastly, there's a few discussions uh, in the book uh, of the role of technocracy. Uh, and of course, this is a, a phrase that's associated very much with the Obama administration uh, across a variety of, of policies and, and topics. But I really found the discussion of the Obama pursuit of a technocratic war on terror really interesting. And in fact, one piece where you tie that then is that technocrats are almost always you know, the opponents of nativists and vice versa. They have a symbiotic relationship. Technocrats can't trust nativists and can't trust nativist impulses. Uh, and nativists will never trust technocrats as protecting what they believe to be you know, deeply pure or, or core to, to the nation. 
I thought that was fascinating. Um, and I wanted to hear a bit more about that in terms of the sort of sociological implications. And we think about, quote, Trump voters, and we think about, quote, the Obama legacy, that role of technocracy and how it plays. Lastly, I'll say, um, you know, the, the book and our conversations, you know, for over the, the last, you know, 15 years, you know, can always brought me back to the question, what is the role of an intelligence service in a democracy? Um, we have, you know, friends and allies around the world um, that have various permutations of intelligence. The United States is often described as not really having a true domestic intelligence service, certainly not along the lines of, of MI5 uh, in the UK. Uh, but we've seen the emergence of a variety of domestic surveillance capabilities. Um, and so I just put is a broad question to the panel. I'll be interested to hear from Justin and Abby as well. You know, what is the proper role, if any, of an intelligence service or services uh, in, a, in a functioning democracy? So thanks. Well, thank you so much. I, I sort of suggested at the outset, Spencer, do you have anything that you want? I have some questions here. I have some questions of my own that I can ask, but is there anything, do you want to take a sort of cleaning the table of what's been left out there? Or do you want to try to weave in responses as more questions come in? Let me take um, as quickly as I can do this, because there's a lot there. And I really want to thank Abby and my old friend, Aaron, for such engaged reads, uh, such sharp critiques. And I want to try and see if I can weave in um, Aaron's questions and observations about the security state uh, with Abby's observations about the ways in which um, we have very often siloed um, uh, national uh, security from, from domestic politics. Um, so um, Aaron asked if I viewed the security state as monolithic. I try in the book um, to show that it isn't. Um, I view it um, you know, obviously a reader will determine if I'm successful with this or if I flatten the thing that I'm, you know, hoping to kind of, you know, uh, emerge like a souffle. Um, but to mix the metaphor even worse, I think we should understand the security state as a federation of different um, kind of bureaucratic tribes uh, with oftentimes um, competing um, but intended to be complementary uh, purposes. Um, Aaron said that, you know, very often it can appear like, you know, those tribes have their own foreign policy preference. And I think that's because, you know, not just, you know, as a matter of, um, of, of uh, you know, outright, you know, foreign policy uh, decision making, some of the elements of this apparatus don't involve themselves in foreign policy. Um, but, you know, they have, as would be the case, you know, in any uh, organization that kind of forges itself through a sort of crucible. Um, very strong very strong and determined um, preferences for how not just policy ought to orient itself and, and, and the kind of left and right limits um, uh, of that, but also about processes through which uh, we can determine, and this weaves into Aaron's point, I'm hoping to pivot elegantly, uh, to um, a technocratic interpretation um, of uh, the way in which good policy is determined by good process, not necessarily through uh, a considered um, and sort of like holistic uh, 
outright preference for the way, you know, a particular policy, you know, necessarily ought to go. The point that I'm getting at is that there is a way in which uh, this apparatus intersects very well um, with the technocratic elements of the Democratic Party in particular, um, to speak to, um, to Abby's point. Um, as Aaron predicted, uh, I will say um, that I would draw a distinction between liberals and the left as to which had the role of producing Trump. The left after 9-11 experiences a circumstance in which it has absolutely no power. Um, and very often our, our discourse flattens what I think is a really crucial distinction um, between liberalism and left currents. Of course, I would say that I am a socialist. Nevertheless, um, the Democratic Party um, moves throughout the Cold War and particularly after Vietnam aggressively away from its traditional uh, constituencies in labor and replaces that with a more professional um, upper middle class um, element of its coalition. That coalition, which is typically uh, both allergic to the left and allergic to nativism, um, sees uh, questions of foreign policy and national security through very often a technocratic lens. What works is what we should do. Uh, what husbands American power is what we should do. What uh, reduces American power in the service of kind of violent interpretations of it, we ought not to do. Um, that means that it will also, as Aaron points out, have a very contentious um, view um, of uh, relationship with nativism, um, both as a class prerogative, but also as a policy prerogative. Um, what ends up neglected are sort of two things. One, just as there are technocratic elements uh, within the security state, there are nativist elements within the security state. That really ought not to come as much of a surprise as, as sometimes it does. Um, it very also often gets flattened in the discourses, you know, particularly when um, you start to see on, you know, in, in you know, liberal aligned media outlets, a kind of veneration of the technocratic elements um, of American um, security power. But also you can see throughout the war on terror and throughout the enterprise that the war on terror is, is it feeds nativism. It will also feed nativist currents that take root inside uh, these agencies or allow those that have already taken root expression. We see that in terms not just of torture within the CIA, um, but, you know, I mentioned, you know, Michael Flynn is one example. John Kelly is another. Um, you mentioned Aaron uh, Jim Mattis. And, you know, I am struck, you know, forever um, as, you know, the first image we saw really of Mattis as defense secretary on the first day of Trump's presidency is Trump coming to the Pentagon to sign the Muslim ban, something that supposedly has nothing to do with the military at all. We would find out this was in fact not the case, but Mattis at that point is standing over Trump's shoulder, grinning and applauding. And that, you know, sort of showed us in early examples of the ways in which you know, lions of the security establishment thinking that they will, you know, go into the Trump administration to co-opt or um, keep Trump on, you know, what they consider the rightful path, which is to say, as Aaron mentioned, maintenance of the war on terror. This was the purpose, not just of Mattis, um, but um, H.R. McMaster as well. Um, but also um, we see through that alliance of convenience what they're willing to tolerate. And that's where I think we can you know, circle back and I'll stop talking about the ways in which um, in national security circles, especially, and sometimes in kind of domestic policy circles you know, for national security, these two things get entirely siloed as if the operations of one have no impact on the other. 
And that is the way policy works, but it's not the way the world works. And it's not the way America works. These things are not very easily siloed at all. And it turns out that the audiences for uh, national security messages um, that have to do uh, with both um, an atmosphere of an internal enemy and the construction of an apparatus to, to confront that enemy will, given enough time, end up uh, breaking whatever boundaries are, you know, the longer that they're permitted to persist. And, you know, I think very often, you know, I, I look back at my experience covering national security um, for, you know, pretty much nearly 20 years now, and have always been struck the degrees with which elements of the security apparatus, you know, whether it's, you know, me covering the CIA or whether, you know, the 18 or so months I spent every day in the Pentagon as part of the press pool, these security elements really do not want to address that at all. They want to, they kind of say that, and, you know, it's not an unreasonable objection in the abstract, that they do not have any constitutional role as it comes to domestic policy and politics, and you don't want them to. And that's true. We don't want them to. But what we can't do by the same token is use that as a way not to understand the actions that the security state pursues and um, uh, you know, executes as if it has no relationship, and in particular in this case, as if it does not have a deeply worrisome relationship uh, to the you know, domestic operations of the United States. Thanks a lot, Spencer. I was going to be the great uh, uh, pluralistic democratic moderator and start roping in questions from the audience. But what you've just said has led to the one thing that I wanted to ask you about. So I'm going to have to be uh, an authoritarian usurper here and go ahead and jump in first thing onto the pile. So I think, you know, the, I was interested in the subtitle of the book because to me that's very provocative, right? That the 9-11 era produced Trump. And I think that's part of the flash of your book. Um, and I think you have what I will polemically call, although you will probably say it's not polemical at all, it's accurate, uh, white supremacy or something like that. It's sort of the connective tissue from going 7,000 miles away and killing Muslims and having, you know, separating Hispanic children from their parents at the border and putting them into camps, right? So in the introduction, you say the perception of non-whites as alien marauders, even as conquerors from a hostile foreign civilization was the engine of the war on terror. You say a war that never defined its enemy became an opportunity for the so-called MAGA coalition of white Americans to merge their grievances in an atmosphere of righteous emergency. And I think it's clear that the sort of Toby Keith, truck nuts kind of uh, America enabled the global war on terror, right? After 9-11, there was this sense that we were going to put our foot somewhere, as Toby Keith sang. Um, you know, there was going to be consequences, right? You can't come over here and do this kind of thing. So I think it's it's easy enough as a, as a you know, uh, a Missouri boy at heart, you know, I... I, I you know, I know these people, right? <laughs> Some of them are my people. But I think the global war on terrorism was an elite project. And the elites were pretty cosmopolitan, right? Like you have all these interesting stories in there about uh, Michael D'Andrea, who is a convert to Islam. Uh, and, and, and if memory serves, and I haven't transposed him with somebody else, you know, deeply involved in this sort of the torture program, right? Like, so you have all these people that I think are not, 
fa fairly characterized as white supremacists or, or, or anything other than cosmopolitans, really, who came up with this monstrous architecture of policies that, yes, were sort of enabled and permitted by a we're us and you're them and we're going to kick your ass kind of politics. And so is it like we stood up the, the policies and institutions of the global war on terrorism and they were enabled and permitted by a sort of exclusionary nationalism that could be as easily zapped onto you know, Somali villagers via drone as they could onto Honduran dishwashers at the border via ICE and CBP. So can you talk a little bit? It, it, so in a sense, it seems to me that there are a lot of vignettes and stories in the book about elites doing bad things. Um, but, it you know, the, the, the sort of broad arc of the book is a sort of argument about how mass politics permitted this to be the case. So do you see, like... Are, are elites using this permissive mass political context? And so, like, I want I want the elites to get blamed more. Can you talk a little bit about the, where you think the, the, the responsibility lies in the main and the interplay between mass and elite politics? Sure. So I don't really, um, in the book, if I can, you know, make this objection, um, ever say that the war on terror is the result of mass politics. Um, it is, in fact, an elite project, precisely as, as, as you describe it. What elite projects do is then seek mass ratification, um, which, which I think is, a, is an exceptional difference. There is, you know, there is no area um, of American policymaking that is less representative and less democratically accountable than national security. Um, there are lots of ways in which um, the organs of national security, particularly the ways in which the elected branches intersect um, with the organs of national security that, you know, wish to um, point to that intersection as meaningful democratic consent. And that's one of the ways in which uh, we get the NSA saying, well, if you, you know, didn't want us spying on absolutely every American, why did the eight people in Congress who run the place, uh, that is to say the Gang of Eight, the uh, Democratic and Republican leaders of the House, the Senate, and the Intelligence in, uh, uh, Oversight Committees, well, why didn't they object vigorously? And like that is really the ways in which particularly uh, the NSA in particular uh, wants to point to uh, a, you know, tiny elite consensus as an acceptable substitute uh, for democratic ratification, but that ratification works in other ways. Um, the relationship as you, so like everything you say about the cosmopolitan nature of many of the people who wage the war on terror is absolutely correct. And I, I go into um, in the book at, at, at some great length. It's also one of the ways in which, um, particularly after 2007 in the surge, uh, liberals kind of like see the technocracy and the cosmopolitanness um, in the security agencies and like reach the modus vivendi that they are trying to, um, to uh, grasp toward. However, and this is the point I'm, I'm trying to make uh, with white supremacy, uh, it is white supremacy as the result of a much deeper and more structural way um, that American politics works. 
that despite the cosmopolitan nature of many of the people who uh, establish, implement, and maintain the war on terror, nevertheless, all of those elements, everything that white supremacist terrorism would want, uh, basically comes to pass, which is to say a gigantic apparatus, um, both, you know, not just domestically focused, not just foreign focused, but domestically focused, comes to exist that erodes the distinction between violence, acts of violence and ideological affiliation and erodes the distinction between uh, violent acts and uh, elements that are not violent, but support them um, as well. And, you know, generally large webs of association come to exist that functionally operate as racial profiling. And all of that is exclude, all of that excludes white supremacist terror from the start. I start the book um, in uh, a white supremacist terrorism camp where uh, Timothy McVeigh once visited um, and where, you know, he was among two places, you know, he thought he would decamp to after the bombing in order to show the war on terror by contrast, what the war on terror never includes, despite using the very cosmopolitan label of war on terror, which suggests a kind of ecumenicism, uh, a way in which uh, the government will look at all of these different kinds of political violence equally, when in fact it never does. Because of that euphemism, as well as the reality of who uh, that terrorism, uh, who counterterrorism is pointed at, those allow for opportunities uh, for nativism to grow in strength uh, for white supremacy to express itself very often overseas. Um, I would argue, and I do in the book, uh, that American exceptionalism itself is extremely coterminous with both settler colonialism, the settler colonialism that establishes America, the settler colonialism that uh, in one formation makes America great, and also this project of white innocence that always goes along with settler colonialism, that, that these guys meant well. And that's what uh, white innocence applied globally looks like. It looks like American exceptionalism, where good guys mean to do good things and set up good structures that benefit, sure, themselves, but also benefit everyone else, except in reality, it looks you know, quite a lot different. Um, that, I believe, is more of the relationship uh, between what the war on terror is in its nativist component and what the war on terror both bills itself as and even understands itself as, which is this cosmopolitan um, sensibility in which, uh, and this is particularly the case in the Obama administration, um, we're likely to find it in the Biden administration as well, where well-meaning, good-natured people in the appropriate bureaucratic contexts come together to figure out the right ways to meter violence. And it turns out that what happens there, expansion of a drunk campaign kills thousands of people overseas, the maintenance of uh, mass surveillance, and uh, many other such things. Uh, you know, you mentioned Maya, who as far as we know is still at the CIA. Uh, and Andrea, yes, converts to Islam to make his wife. He also becomes the head IA's counterterrorism right at the era, the uh, final, the kind of terminal phase of uh, the black site torture prisons, then pivots to running the drone campaign. And when um, Trump is elected and Mike Pompeo becomes CIA director, then he runs operations against Iran, which we are still waiting to find out like what exactly those were. Um, one wonders if, if, you know, how much of a role Dan 
Andrea had in the assassination of Qasem Soleimani that practically, you know, risked the war as shooting the war outright, not a proxy, uh, between and Iran. So hopefully that goes a little bit more granularly uh, into how I describe both white supremacism in the book and why I do, and also the relation between nativists and cosmopolitans in the war on in a war on terror context. That's great. Thank you. So there are a couple of questions now that I'm back in pluralist Democrat mode um, that have come in over the transom that I think also speak to the uh, broader moment in which we find ourselves. And so I'd love both Spencer, your thoughts, as well as the thoughts uh, of your discussants on these questions. So Nathan, Nathan Smith, I should say, um, mentions that former President George W. Bush has recently lamented the apparent withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, and he asked sort of how, how much of a wellspring is George W. Bush, the individual in the administration for the predicament in which we find ourselves now? Um, and then there are a couple of other questions that I think are also, I'd like to hear everyone's views on. So you, one of the anonymous writes in, uh, pointing to your phrasing of omnidirectional violent nihilism. And he asks, he or she asks, what do you replace omnidirectional violent nihilism with? Which I think is a, an interesting uh, question. And then thirdly, something that's in the news these days is the idea of repealing authorizations for the use of military force. Um, and so we have uh, on the table now uh, the, both of the Iraq war uh, authorizations, but with some reticence about uh, going all the way, going the full Monty. Uh, in getting rid of, you know, what are really some of the legal underpinnings of the global war on terror. So AUMF repeal, Bush, the man and the administration, and omnidirectional violent nihilism. So uh, Spencer, and then we'll go around the horn. How about that? Okay, I'll go real quick. Um, Bush is responsible for a tremendous amount. In many ways, uh, we live in the world that he shaped and that he of all people, uh, should have understood with the forces that he played with um, when it benefited him, um, that he is in material ways culpable, not only for the deaths of probably millions of people, the immiseration and refugee flows of literally tens of millions of people, and also for Donald Trump. And I think that um, when it comes to the repeal of AUMFs, um, you know, the total abolition of the war on terror um, is the goal, um, and we should accept no substitutes. One of the reasons um, that I think they're, you know, starting with the repeal of uh, the 2002 AUMF is because, you know, we should be very grateful for the activists that got us to the point uh, where such a thing happens in Congress. Congress typically just doesn't um, repeal war authorizations. But repealing the 2002 one is, is, is the easy one. And, and the 2001 AUMF is really the, the kind of central um, wellspring, but it won't be enough because things like mass surveillance uh, are now really, you know, um, Abby you know, mentioned the political economy of the war on terror. Mass surveillance is now, you know, symbiotic with 21st century capitalism. There's a better book than I could ever write um, on this called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by the Harvard Business School Professor Emerita Shoshana Zuboff. I, I highly commend that. Um, and then finally, what do we replace omnidirectional violent nihilism with? 
I think it's really simple. We replace it with solidarity. We replace it with an ethic of caring for one another as if we would about ourselves. Great. Thank you, Spencer. So on my thing, which looks like is different than your thing, I have Abby and then Aaron, but uh, so let's just stick with that and then I'll go vice versa the other way around. Right, so I'll, um, I'll be brief because I, I would echo quite a bit of what, uh, what Spencer said. In terms of Bush's role, I think that obviously he, he plays a, a critical one. So this is the, the administration that really starts us down along this path. Um, I don't think by any means that the blame is exclusively his. Um, once you start these kinds of pieces in motion, there are these other components that tend to propel and expand them. So thinking in terms of things like the economics of bureaucracy, now you have these incentives that are deeply ingrained in our political structures that are going to all but ensure that these types of things uh, continue. It's, it's more than that, though, and one of the things that I think is also interesting for us to discuss is that there's been a lot of discussion about, again, the, the role that elites play in kind of this supply-driven side of the war on terror. But it's not just a supply-side issue. There's a demand, I think, for these kinds of things as well that started from that initial crisis that Bush oversaw, which was, of course, the terror attacks on 9-11, and then the subsequent reaction of individuals for the government to, you know, do something to counteract that. Um, I don't know that anybody might have anticipated that this was the something that we were going to wind up with. Um, so, so Bush bears a lot of responsibility, but certainly not, not all of it. And then um, just very briefly to talk about the repeals of you know, the, the AUMF, the one from 2001 and 2002, um, I have a very similar assessment and that the, the 2001 AUMF is really what's kind of driving, driving things. Um, I don't think that repealing either of them would be sufficient in terms of rolling back what it is that we've started with respect to, to the war on terror. Um, so potentially marginally beneficial steps to put it in economic parlance, um, but not sufficient steps. And I think Thank that you. I largely, sorry, Justin, yeah. I, I think that I largely agree on the AUMF pieces. They are, um, it's again, mostly just sort of politically fascinating that we're going to have that debate today, this week, this year, as opposed to, you know, any, any other year. Um, uh, I think on the Bush question, you know, one of the things that struck me reading the book was the number of counterfactuals or fulcrum points or sliding doors moments, you know, that, that sort of get us to where we are today. And it's a, it's a, literally a series of unfortunate events uh, in, in many ways, um, starting with a 5-4 Supreme Court decision that leads to a Bush administration in the first place. Um, but I think that one, it's easy to sort of, you know, we can say the Bush administration, I would actually maybe narrow that down a little bit. Um, Spencer rightly notes the sort of um, Rumsfeldian dismissal of Taliban negotiations uh, in late, you know, 2001 uh, that might have brought us, you know, right to the place we are right now, except that we held Kandahar in December of 2001, and apparently we don't today, um, nor does the Afghan government. Um, you know, so I think that there's, it's not just Bush as an individual, um, although he is the president and has actually all of the executive authority that makes a significant amount of this happen. Um, but the particular personalities of uh, Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney, I think it's just not possible enough to give them credit. You know, if just imagine a world where we either accept terms, you know, in December 2001 with the Taliban or don't invade Iraq. 
both of those things to me strike are, are, are so put it on such a different footing and different path in terms of both the national security, um, kind of the intelligence, you know, agencies that we're talking about, but also the evolution of the American military. I mean, and what this these wars did and were, you know, to and by the Defense Department. Um, it, it also, you know, the other piece that re it reminded me, Spencer, reading the book um, was Day of the Jackal. And I kept having this sort of reverb in the language that you were using to uh, right-wing France, you know, in the 1950s. Um, and they felt so betrayed by de Gaulle. Uh, they could not believe that de Gaulle, of all people, would sell him out. And so de Gaulle has to fight off two coup attempts uh, because of the way that he chooses to essentially settle, to walk away from, you know, the war in Algeria, which had many similar elements, right? And it, it sort of raises a broader question to me of, is there anything to learn from, you know, the way that our fellow, you know, uh, settler colonial uh, countries like France or the UK recovered or didn't? Uh, from their imperial wars in the 50s and 60s? You know, did they regain something of their ethos of solidarity, Spencer, as, as you note? Um, or does it continue to eat away at them? You know, is there is there a there there? But the the lingering echoes of that sit, sit in my head. Um, and whether that gives us an alternative to omnidirectional violent nihilism, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Uh, but I think it would have put us on a path where the military wasn't the best, most trusted, most dominant organization, you know, for us to go to for all problems, um, whether it's for that, those specifically, or at least their solution set uh, that might've provided a different path. Thank you. I wanted to do another couple of uh, directly germane, but also sort of in the news and in the, the, the universe, right? So we've seen um, the release of an article uh, just a couple weeks ago, I have it over there somewhere. Well, let me see. The war on terror has not yet failed, I read. A net assessment after 20 years. And more directly and more maybe politically germane, right? Dick Cheney says, you know, the war on terror saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, so this is a sort of, there is this sort of counterfactual uh, or post hoc ergo propter hoc. Look, we've done all this stuff and there hasn't been another 9-11, Spencer. So what about that? So I, I you know, I, I do think that I have my own story about this, but it's your book forum. Um, so respond to this idea that, you know, you can't just dismiss, you can't just wave this all away and say that we were chasing ghosts as my colleague, John Mueller characterizes it, right? There, there, we've done some important things here and we've secured America, number one. Um, and then number two, the Afghanistan issue is sort of hanging out there and I think we should probably say something about it. And one of the things that I, in a, in a much smaller way, had to go down this horrible same rabbit hole that you did, Spencer, wrote a, a 20 year retrospective on American foreign policy. Um, and it's interesting to look at the, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, of course, uh, various members of the administration were looking at invading Iraq immediately uh, in addition to Afghanistan. But we sort of leapfrogged Afghanistan. There wasn't a tremendous amount of intellectual, economic, political, or military effort that went into the initial campaign in Afghanistan. And the thing that you keep here in particular, keep hearing Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz saying is there are no aim points in Afghanistan. Right. There's, no, there's nothing to blow up. You know, we're going to go in there and we're going to kill some people and they're going to scatter. Uh, and, th and then what? 
And so I think there is this interesting idea of, right, the, the, the offer that was on the table in December of 2001, um, and, and that I think is, I, I'm not known for sympathizing with the Bush administration, kind of inconceivable um, that we would have, you know, come to some sort of condominium with the Taliban uh, two and a half months after 9-11 and sort of, you know, gone into a more intelligence-driven policing kind of campaign. Um, but the broad arc of Afghanistan, right? I mean, I, I, I do think, you know, I would be interested in hearing everyone's sense of, because I think you could tell a very plausible story that if not in December of 2001, by late 2002 or early 2003, there's really not a lot left to do in Afghanistan in, in a, in a, in a, relatively narrow counterterrorism sense. Um, and so I think that again, to, to, to put myself in the, in the shoes of the Bush administration, that does kind of leave you standing there without much to say about, you know, how tough we are and how we're fighting terrorism in late 2002 or early 2003. So Dick Cheney's counterfactual, and the broad arc of Afghanistan. So we'll go Spencer, then Aaron, then Abby. I'll try and do this super fast because I want to hear what everyone has to say. But everything that you've spoken about uh, put me in mind of Aaron's point about sliding doors, paths not taken. Um, it is extremely important to remember that we don't, in 2001, fight a war on Al-Qaeda. We also don't fight a potentially you know, non-war response uh, to Al-Qaeda. And the fact that this is all played out the way it has, um, has kind of, I think it's fair to say, colonized the discourse, to use, you know, probably an obnoxious phrase, um, in the sense that we can't really see that these were choices. These were not inevitabilities. These were specific choices made by um, the Bush administration, affirmed, um, with extremely little uh, high-level dissent uh, by the security state, used by the security apparatus, and certainly um, validated uh, through uh, both a lot of really unfortunate and terrible journalism, some of which, um, and also you know the the kind of broader political moment uh, we were talking. I think Abby mentions this as well you know, wishing to demand for um, the response from 9-11. I'm not sure I think there is a demand for some kind of righteous violence in terms of a response, but metering it as broadly, as open-endedly, as almost metaphysically, um, as George W. Bush did, gets us quietly um, to uh, things like being unequipped to say, you know what, if the Taliban are saying they will stack arms, as long as Mullah Omar can be under house arrest and then they will enter a political process and then essentially a government of Afghanistan uh, with somewhat broad representative basis can exist, that's fine because ultimately if, you know, really Afghanistan is not what we're interested in here. Uh, if we take the perspective that we're interested in either Al-Qaeda or bin Laden himself or the people in Al-Qaeda who plot the attack, that's a very different proposition. That's a very different um, circumstance that gives you a very different outcome. Um, well, maybe not necessarily an outcome, but certainly a, a much different strategy. It looks something more narrow and it looks like something more winnable, something that has clear terms at which it can be won. These people no longer um, 
these specific people, these people who did specific violent things, no longer are in a position to do those specific violent things anymore. Instead, we use this extremely expansive definition. Um, we are unwilling, elites are at least, um, to, to really argue for it um, so much as kind of allow a definition that flatters um, American exceptionalist sensibilities to take root. And then you are looking at a sprawl that kind of makes it on its own internal and I would argue like deeply psychotic logic, makes sense perhaps to invade Iraq, makes sense perhaps to expand the war to Syria, makes sense perhaps to expand the war to Iran even as, as, as was very often um, discussed and, and proposed. Um, and, and I wanna just sort of leave, you know, with, you know, taking up the, you know, well, hundreds of thousands of lives were saved and, you know, there wasn't a 9-11. Um, you know, that is very obviously uh, a self-interested justification um, the reality is that the United States experienced a level of domestic political violence uh, in as recently as the 1970s, as living memory, that was far, far greater than that they experienced at home, even after um, the war on terror and beyond, because ultimately these threats are not equivalent threats. The United States inflated this threat tremendously. It did so conceptually and it did so tragically, necessarily conspiratorially. Um, so I would just leave that there. Uh, the war on terror did not make America safer. The war on terror expanded by far the list of people that want to do America harm because of the harm America inflicted on either them or people like them. Yeah. Yeah. The Rumsfeld snowflake. Aaron, do you want to go ahead and um, take it away? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to be sort of deliberately provocative, mostly because that's what Spencer inspires me to to do sometimes. But, you know, the I, I think it is easy to lose sight in some ways of what the frame of mind was, you know, subsequent to 9-11 and even in a few years after, right? Because it's not just 9-11, right? There are London attacks two years later. There are train attacks in Spain, you know, the, around a similar sort of time. So there is this, you know, quite extended amount of crisis. I mean, I, I tend to believe that, yes, the administration over time um, inflated or at least certainly saw Al-Qaeda everywhere. Um, on the flip side, Al-Qaeda was in a lot of places and blowing shit up in them. So, you know, there was actually a, a fair amount of concern. And I think that Spencer actually does something very interesting in the book where he talks about this from a perspective of human security versus national security. Americans being particularly anxious around the concept of us being vulnerable in our quote homeland, a term that he notes that we also more or less created and didn't use prior to 9-11. Um, now, all of which is to say, like, I think there, there in fact was a threat. It was in fact different than many of the things we had dealt with previously. And it was quite um, difficult for the existing apparatus, whether legal intelligence or defense to figure out how to anticipate, respond, prevent these sorts of things. Um, that said, I spent a fair amount of time, you know, kind of in the middle 2000s thinking about why hadn't there been another 9-11? Um, and, and certainly the idea that we had invaded Iraq uh, was not uh, at the top of my, my list of answers. Um, but it did strike me that we had a relatively good intelligence screening, right, that, that had prevented this, you know, people from entering the United States in a way that was not done, done previously as a, as a narrow proposition. 
Um, I think the question of human security, if you ask, you know, do we feel sort of safer at home today than we do, um, you know, did 20 years ago, I was just, you know, saw on my phone that, you know, Joint Base um, Anacostia Bowling is shut down at the moment because of a, a shooting event. Um, and they are looking for, for the shooter, you know, there's a number of things that are sort of, you know, very prominent in American culture and American society today that I think weren't there before. Some of them, which I think are very much attributable to a 20 year campaign of violence um, perpetrated, you know, both at home and, and abroad. Uh, I don't know that it's quite one for one, but there's certainly an evolution of that in American society. On so all of which is to say, I think, I think Dick Cheney is, you know, smoking, you know, high in his own stash here, but is, is not, um, I don't believe that we've saved thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, I do believe that there were some steps taken that seemed to have prevented uh, a group like Al Qaeda from pursuing large mass casualty events against the United States in the United States. That is different. That was that, that, you know, um, and they of course had a campaign running up to that. The question of Afghanistan, you know, for me is the most both professionally and emotionally vexing, you know, that, that I confront here. I spent a year in Afghanistan as an advisor. Uh, most of that was in headquarters. Uh, a bit of that was out further in the field uh, in, in Helmand with the Marines at the time. It was during the, the Afghanistan surge. Uh, I desperately wanted to find a way to, to make that outcome of that war different or better. Uh, and I struggled, uh, as I would tell people at the time and told people since. I'm like really smart and I can't figure out why these advances, you know, in uh, Nawa province, um, you know, make a difference to the broader campaign, much less how the broader campaign is actually helping. Again, by way of context, though, I will say that the, the problem was rarely Afghanistan. The problem was always Pakistan. Uh, and figuring out what you do with a semi-collapsed Afghan state, you know, with a nuclear neighbor um, is a problem that defense wonks are going to get to revisit all over again, because that will be back on the table in two days or two weeks or two months. But it will be coming soon to a theater near us um, very quickly. Thank you, Erin. Abby, thoughts? Yeah, so... I agree that the, the Afghanistan question is, is interesting. What I'd like to do is I'd like to talk again about this, uh, you know, Dick Cheney's quote of the war on terror having saved hundreds of thousands of lives, but then also combine that actually, Justin, with one of the first things that you said, which was, I guess, the, the piece that you had read that the war on terror had, had not failed. Because um, I think that those two things, or we can, we can kind of bridge those two things together. In terms of the, the you know, hundreds of thousands of lives saved, that's very clearly a self-serving type of, of statement coming from someone who is a, a primary architect of, of the war on terror. It's, it's frankly just a bad take. Um, we have data about the relative risks of terrorism. We had that data prior to 9-11. We had that data after 9-11. There is no meaningful difference in the two periods. 9-11 um, is probably everybody here knows is an extreme outlier event. And so you treat it as you would with another out, as you would any other outlier, even though it being a very tragic one. Um, but I think that that really gets to, so this metric or this idea of lives saved comes back to this idea of how do we actually measure success in the war on terror? Because if you go back to the speech that President Bush gave when he first mentions this conceptualization of a war on terror, he lays out this remarkably ambitious goal of complete global eradication of terror. Now, of course, nobody reasonably believes that this is actually an, an achievable goal. And so in this case, how do we actually go about measuring success in the war on terror? And 
the the blunt statement is is that government doesn't really have defined metrics for success in this supposed war you look at something like the 9-11 report for instance that has a a section that's supposedly dedicated to this idea of measuring success but it's remarkably hollow and doesn't actually include anything that's particularly concrete so then what does that lead us to that leads us to individual researchers or groups of researchers trying to figure out how it is that we go about defining and measuring success. And so for those pieces of data and those reports that we do have, I think that the, the answer to that, again, to the extent that we, we have the data looking at this and how we define success is, is clear that the, the war on terror has not only failed to make us safer, but has actually destabilized a remarkable part of the world, but also made us less safe and less secure in, in some really profound ways. And I'll leave that there. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I wanted to conclude and, and, and to push Spencer on this, and this is always, I'm gonna empathize with you here, buddy. This is the worst question to, to have to answer. Um, but I, it's, it's from the closing of the introduction of the book. And again, I'd like to get everyone's thoughts. Um, until the entire war on terror is abolished, not only the foreign military deployments, but the broader entrenched architecture of surveillance, detention, immigration, suppression, and the rest, it will propel itself toward greater domestic destabilization. Inertia alone is sufficient to power, right? Inertia is a very powerful force. Um, and unraveling and unspinning bureaucracies, elite politics, mass politics is really difficult. Um, so you see, even in, a, in an era where 20 years later, um, we haven't seen a manifestation of regular 9-11s erupting all over the place, um, you when you poll the public they say they're really worried about terrorism uh 20 years after 9 11 after the iraq war after the afghanistan war etc cetera, etc cetera, inertia alone is sufficient to power it how do you overcome inertia i mean i, I think you have to tell the story about elites here really that you persuade elites that you can look tough while unwinding a lot of the things uh, that brought us to where we are. So I think that the, the bureaucratic baggage, the political baggage, coupled with inertia, Spencer, get us out of this mess. What are we going to do here? Yeah, so, you know, you mentioned compelling elites um, do these things, and I think that is really the key. A uh, thing that will uh, compel elites uh, to unravel the war on terror is mass politics, mass pressure. Um, people ask me, how do you end the war on terror? I say there's really only one word you know, for an answer. You organize. Um, already we are seeing the Biden administration's movements away uh, to recede the war on terror, which I will you know, be the first to talk about um, how insufficient they are and how tentative they are and sort of point at the lots of them. But the fact that they exist at all is of persistent organizing has helped particularly within the democratic uh coalition force elites to reckon with the wages of american foreign policy in its resting state and the war on terror in particular those pressures are what matter here those pressures shouldn't only happen every time there is either an election or every time there is you know a primary battle 
uh, it has to happen continuously. This is going to be a, a very large straw. You know, I, I'm, I'm hesitant, uh, you know, to, to be a little bit, you know, too hackish and use the language of the war on terror uh, for this. But, you know, I don't want to say it's a generational struggle, but it is certainly a long war uh, to, to, to get finally out of this nightmare of being at neither peace nor victory. And the way that has to happen is by forcing elites to do the things necessary, um, whether they are programmatic things like um, the repeal of the AOMFs, uh, the repeal of uh, Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, the total repeal of the Patriot Act, uh, the uh, destruction and scattering to the winds of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, a pretty much, I would argue, total realignment of U.S. foreign policy uh, that removes American military bases uh, overseas and replaces all of this with an architecture of actual international solidarity institutions that, not as they exist, are responsive, are responsive to governments, but organizations and institutions that are more to actual people, democratic institutions, a structure of uh, democracy, a structure of coalitions of democracies that scale down and scale up, that allow the people who generate not only the wealth of the world, a meaningful uh, say over how it is used, but people allowed to have important says over how foreign power uh, interacts with their lives. It's a very large goal, uh, but it's a very necessary one at a time in which, you know, at a time in which humanity is facing the sorts of challenges as we are seeing right now, we're having this at home because it is not safe to breathe air as one another inside. What we should learn from that is the only way out of these compounding crises is by standing together, demanding the elites that profit for them, that profit from them, both economically and politically, to bend to our will instead. It's a man with a plan. Abby, did you have uh, thoughts about how to, how to get somewhere else from here? So in terms of practical steps, I, I would certainly agree that we can talk about things like repealing the AUMF, the abolition of things like the Patriot Act, like all of these types of things are, are practical, but I, I think that there, there's definitely something that supersedes them. And Spencer really hits the, the nail on the head is that I think the, the driving force behind this is the prevailing and dominant ideology of the citizenry of the US. Because at the end of the day, like we can talk about a variety of different checks and balances on government, particularly things like the security state. Um, the reality is, is that when we talk about, you know, you know, passing legislation or things like that to try to constrain government, you're essentially trusting the people who are wielding the power to tie their own hands, which is not a reasonable expectation for us to have. But as Spencer points out, the, the citizenry determines ultimately what is acceptable and unacceptable on the part of our policymakers. And so all of these types of things that we can talk about from a practical perspective really have to come after this shift in thinking among the greater population that what it is that has gone on and what is continuing to go on is no longer acceptable. And I think only then when we get to that point, can we then really start to talk about what these practical pieces um, are going to be. Um, and... Great. Thanks, Abby. Aaron, any closing coda to this thing? 
Yeah, and I think it comes from maybe it's the, the, the supply and the demand side, as we talked about earlier, but it's also, um, you know, we, we listed off some of the, the luminaries of, of the war on terror and the counterinsurgency campaigns, um, people who have often been, you know, mentors of mine even, uh, and so many of them so thoroughly discredited within the Trump administration that it actually, I think, discredits to a degree the whole enterprise. Not just the war on terror, but maybe breaks a spell a little bit within the democratic national security establishment um, around the cult of the general, uh, and maybe even a little bit around the cult of technocracy, right? That we can't just, you know, God bless our hearts, processes our Valentine, you know, our way through all of these problems. But in fact, we need, you know, not just a different set of solutions, but a different set of solution makers. So I think that that's sort of one piece that gives me a glimmer of hope that there's sort of an opening uh, for a different set of experts. I still like a technocracy, I have to admit, Spencer, um, but, a, but a different set of expertise to bring to the fore, not just uh, military or intelligence experience. The, the second piece is, as, as Abby was just saying, uh, a set of crises that are in no way bound or, or tied to military uh, challenges, and in fact are not tied to the war on terror at all, right? Are, are in fact challenges of this pandemic, right? Are the climate crisis that we find ourselves in. And so you begin to see discussions around, you know, why are we spending money on this as opposed to, you know, uh, vaccines, public health solutions, climate mitigation, foreign assistance that might address immigration, um, other things that would give us a much broader and uh, robust sense of, quote, human security, but that are quite distinct from what we've traditionally considered national security. And so I wonder if the intersection or the dovetailing of those two things kind of coming out of the Trump administration, whether it's tied to Trump specifically or just some of the excesses and, and you know, poor it, it, processes leads to bad policy outcomes, but but bad policy preferences also lead to bad policy outcomes. Um, and, you know, seeing that there might be a window to do some things differently, um, both with regard to national defense, national security, but also more broadly um, for, you know, you know, American citizens and, and the world. I think that that's, there's a glimmer of hope there to, to do things differently. Um, we'll see how quickly we all get recalled back to the office and the status quo reasserts itself. But I have, you know, for the moment, uh, a hint of optimism. Well, that's great. This is a sort of morbid subject matter, but if there are two things that are nice to close on, it's the idea of a, a new counter elite to take things in a different direction and hard economic constraints and trade-offs uh, in the space of national security. So with that, um, let me mention to everyone that this will be recorded and available on the Cato website either later today or by Monday, probably, if not. Um, and let me give just a real depth of gratitude to Spencer Ackerman for writing the book, Reign of Terror, um, and to Abby Hall Blanco and to Aaron Simpson for participating in our discussion today. Thank you very much for joining us.